Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Thanks, Genesis. This is God's word from Judges. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. The leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, and the heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Thank you, Genesee. Good morning. Uh, for those of y'all I don't know, um, my name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City Bible Church, and it's my joy to uh, get to teach through Judges 5 this morning as a little bit of an opportunity just to set the stage. Uh, for any of y'all that haven't been with us through this series, kind of want to let you know where we're at. We are currently going through the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament, and uh, it's a really fascinating book full of all sorts of colorful uh, stories. And last week, Pastor Aaron preached on Judges chapter 4, which was the story of the judge Deborah and her call to Barak to lead the Israelites against the evil Canaanites who had enslaved them and to, uh, to, to fight for their freedom. And we saw God's miraculous delivery. And so today, we're actually going to be looking at chapter 5, which is a retelling of that story but it's, um, it's, it's, it's a poem. It's a response of praise because of the delivery they've just experienced. So even though it's going to be a similar story, we're going to have a whole new set of lessons that we're able to draw from this passage in the response to the work that God's done. Um, just so you all know, this is a, a little bit different than the other sections. Judges 5 is a piece of Hebrew poetry. The rest of it is narrative, the rest of Judges. And so this one particular passage is really unique in that it's a, a poem. And it's, it's one of the oldest poems in the Old Testament. And this ancient Hebrew, it's, it's a very picturesque language and a very complex language. And so this is actually a really hard passage uh, for translators and in some ways a difficult uh, passage to prepare. And I, I realized... Early on, I just thought it happened to fall on this week, and it just this happened to be the week Aaron was going to be gone, I was preaching, and then I realized he planned it to be gone this week because it was a difficult passage, and he left it to me, so I uh, really appreciated him doing that for me. Um, but that being said, I'm actually, I'm actually excited um, to have the opportunity, partially because it's a good reminder for me, and I think for all of us, that um, you don't have to have seminary degrees to approach God's word. Um, unlike Pastor Shane and Aaron, I've never been to seminary. And so getting to tackle one of these, you know, more complex passages is a great reminder. Like first and foremost, it's God's spirit that works within us that empowers us to understand his word. And then by his grace, he sent lots of people that have studied and provided commentaries and great resources to help us understand his word. And so my encouragement to y'all as I go through and preach today would be, if you ever feel that God's word's unapproachable, know that it's not. It's, it is approachable for all of us. And God wants us to be able to dive into his word to learn about him. And so I'm actually excited to get to have the chance to teach this unique passage. Um, this is also a little bit of a, um, a bittersweet Sunday for me. Um, a little bit bitter um, because this will be the last Sunday that I have the opportunity to preach as one of the elders at Sound City Bible Church. Um, but it's a sweet opportunity uh, just to have the chance to come before you and preach once more before my family and I moved down to Bend, Oregon, uh, where I've accepted a job to go run marketing and operations for a, a small company down there. 
So some of y'all have known this is coming. If you're covenant members this summer, when we put out the packet that talked about our plans for the year, it, it said in there that I was feeling God tugging my heart back into ministry in the workplace and that we were prayerfully considering what that would look like. And so after uh, wrestling through that, um, um, and the covenant members, many of them have asked, and I've been able to share little bits of update along the way. But for the rest of you, let me give a little quick context on this change, because uh, this might be a surprise for some of you. Um, I grew up, uh, my dad had a, a background in ministry, but by the time I was born, he was in the workplace. He wasn't uh, serving on staff with a ministry. Uh, he was a lay elder at our church. Um, but my dad and a lot of them, my mentors um, showed me that the work of the ministry is for all believers. It's not a, a special job for pastors or people that are paid to be on staff at churches or ministry organizations. And, and I saw through my dad and these other mentors that they had a prolific ministry in the workplace. And so I always uh, just had a real passion for that. And most of my career has been spent in the professional workplace. Um, I have background in finance and international marketing and various other roles along the way. And when we started coming nine years ago, I got involved uh, leading community groups and then in time was asked to serve as the, the director for community groups. I was a volunteer uh, doing that while I was working my, my day job and was installed as an elder. I continually had more and more of a heart for the church, uh, but when I was installed as an elder, I was still a volunteer and working in the, the professional workplace. And about two years ago, when Mars Hill, we were at the time called Mars Hill Shoreline, um, when Mars Hill uh, closed, they were going through some really difficult times, and uh, God just gave my wife and I a tremendous burden for the people of this church. We were deeply concerned for the health of the people and the hurt that people were wrestling through, and and um, at the time, Pastor Aaron was the only one on staff, and he called me and said, hey, we, we're replanning, as you know, and we need help, and would you consider coming on staff with us? And it was no hesitation. My wife and I both had a tremendous peace that God had brought us here and given us a burden for this church and, and a desire to serve, and so we instantly uh, said yes. Uh, and I told Pastor Aaron, I said, I, I would love to serve, I would love to help, I think, with my business background helping reestablish processes and get the church established, I think would be, um, I think God has put me here for that purpose and I would love to help. I said, but I just, to be honest, I don't think it's going to be a long-term fit. My heart has always been for ministry in the workplace and I don't think, um, God might surprise me. I was like, once we get into that role, we might find that this is where God's calling me for the long haul. I said, but I think it'll probably be for a season until the church is healthy. And at that point, um, I think God will probably call us back into ministry in the workplace. And so over the past um, couple of years as Sound City Bible Church, I have had, uh, by God's grace, this ongoing and really healthy dialogue with the elders of the church, uh, wrestling through that sense of calling. And uh, as we got healthier and healthier, my wife and I kind of felt more and more of a tug back into the professional workplace. And so this past summer, after lots of dialogue, lots of healthy interaction with the elders, um, uh, we kind of felt that the time had come for me to start exploring and seeing if God might open up other opportunities. And so the long story short is I started making uh, some connections to Bend, Oregon, and uh, was asked to start contracting for a company overseeing their marketing. And so in my spare time, my nights and weekends, I've been kind of running marketing for this company called the Bend Soap Company. And in January, the end of January, they extended an offer asking me to come down full time to run their marketing and operations. And it's, um, like I said, been bittersweet. We have seen God do so many amazing things here at the church, and it has been such a joy to have front row seats to watch him reestablish this church and to grow so many of you as disciples. And, and we've just seen this church flourishing. And so it has been a joy to see God at work in that way. Um, 
but as much as we've enjoyed that, we have felt a tug, and we're very excited to get to move back into the, the workplace and to get to reestablish ministry in the workplace. And so, um, so like I said, bittersweet, um, but want you to know um, we're still working through the details of what the transition will look like. Currently, it's looking like somewhere between mid to late March is when we'll be moving, and so we'll have a few more weeks with you here. This will just be my last week to preach. Um, we have luckily had months to wrestle through what it might look like upon my transition and have lots of um, rough plans that are in place that we're now working through to firm up, and so we'll give you more details as time comes as to what this will actually look like and how it'll impact the church, uh, but just wanted to give you all a heads up that that transition is coming. Um, definitely ask you guys to be praying for my wife and I as we... Um, look for a home and work out all the details of the move, but also for the church, just in this transition. It always can bring up challenges, uh, but it also brings lots of opportunities when there's change of this kind, and so uh, we're excited, and as an elder team, really believe that um, this is going to bring about some changes that'll be a great time to reshuffle and kind of redistribute responsibilities across the staff in a way that will position us to flourish even more uh, in the, the months and the years ahead. So with that, let me pray, and then we will dive into today's passage. Uh, dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much for um, the people of Sound City Bible Church and that you have brought us here. I thank you for this chance to open up your word today and to preach through Judges chapter 5. I pray that by your grace, your spirit would speak through me, and I pray that your spirit would be stirring in the hearts of the people here so that we would all walk away with a much deeper understanding of what it means to truly live a life of praise before you, uh, our almighty God. In your name we pray, amen. Many of you know that I'm originally from Texas, and we kind of grew up out in the country a little bit uh, on the north side of Dallas, and we always had a lot of dogs. And something I learned about dogs is um, often the purebreds know they're purebred, and they can be a little bit uh, pretentious. Uh, the best dogs that we had were always the mutts. Uh, and when I say mutts, like living out in the country, uh, people would come, they'd realize they didn't want their dog, and they would end up just dropping them off, hoping someone else would pick them up. So we would, from time to time, find these dogs that were uh, emaciated, left for dead, didn't know how to fend for themselves, and we'd find these mutts, and, and you'd kind of approach them, and they'd be, you know, uh, if you've ever seen just a dog that's been treated poorly and abandoned, like they're very scared and timid, but once you'd kind of draw them in and love on them, and they would just melt in your arms, and, and those dogs, when you brought them home and cleaned them up and fed them like those dogs would just worship you, man. They would follow you around. They'd greet you at the door. They'd cry when you leave. Like they would lick you to death. Like those dogs were amazing. Uh, no offense to my mom, who I'm sure will hear this later and be upset that I say this, but she always had miniature dachshund. They had no respect for us. They would potty around the house. They would bark all the time. They'd be like, man, look at you. You're cleaning up my messes. You're feeding me. I must be God. And they would walk around like they were little gods. And But the mutts, I mean, they worshiped us. And, and the difference I realized is those mutts that were found on the side of the road knew that they had no hope until you came into their life. They knew that you had rescued them, that you had given them a love they didn't deserve. And so they had a deep appreciation. In the story that we're looking at today, that's kind of what's going on. The Israelites had been under years of oppression and they had just seen God redeem and restore them and save them out from under the hands of their oppressors in a miraculous way. And when you experience that, the only response you can have is one of deep, deep praise. And so as we dive into this um, chapter today, what I want you to be looking for and listening for are themes of praise that are woven throughout this passage. I want you to look for examples of how evidences of God's grace 
when those are shown, how it naturally leads to praise. I want you to be looking for the types of things that are praised uh, and what they're singing praises about. And I also want you to look at, in contrast to that, things that aren't praised or, or, or actually things that are mocked as we go through this passage. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. So bear with me and we're going to dive in and work through this uh, fairly quickly here. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel and that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. So right off the bat, you hear praise. She's blessing the Lord. And she's praising them because the leaders took lead. They didn't just send the people off to fight and stand back from a comfortable distance. The leaders led right into battle. And then the people offered themselves willingly. So, so this is an exciting praise, the fact that there is a free will offering. And, and that phrase, offer themselves willingly, is actually the same type of language used for the, Isra- uh, the Israelites would have a, a free will offering, one of the offerings they would offer to the Lord. And it's this idea of they weren't forced. It was a free will just something they did out of an act of praise. And that's the same language used there. So this free will offering, and she's praising the Lord for that. Then in verse three, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. So this is a singing and a celebration. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water and the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. And what she's praising here is she's acknowledging that God rescued them and he did it through the might of controlling the storms and the heavens. When it says the heavens dropped and the the clouds dropped water, if you were here last week, you know that there was a huge um, unseasonal rain. They were in the dry season and yet God sent this massive rain and it created a flood that bogged down all of the iron chariots that the enemy had. They were a vastly superior war machine, but God took all of their equipment out with that rain and with the mud. And then when it says the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, um, What she's saying is God had power over all of creation, even the mountains quaked. And this was a look back to and a remembering that God had saved them out of the hands of Egypt. And when they came out of Egypt years before, they had gone to Mount Sinai where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. And she said, hey, do you remember that? God's rescued us before and he's rescued us again. The God that we serve is a mighty God and he has shown himself to be a mighty God time and time again as he has rescued us out from under our oppressors. Then in verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. Uh, Because the enemy nation, the Canaanites, had overrun things, it wasn't safe to be out of the highways. So people were sneaking around trying to get from one place to another. Then it says the villagers, villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. Meaning, you know, if you were out on a farm and an enemy nation had come along and they had warriors, you weren't safe on your own. So you would flock to the cities and flock to be with other people in hopes that in greater numbers you would have some protection. So the, the villagers ceased to be uh, until Deborah arose as a mother in Israel, uh, basically meaning she, she arose with a heart. She was burdened for the, the, the place, just like a mom would be burdened for her children under oppression. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. This is saying Israel, she's acknowledging Israel had begun chasing after other gods. They weren't pursuing the God of Israel. They were pursuing uh, Baal and the other gods. And consequently, God had allowed them to fall under the oppression of the Canaanites. And so all of a sudden, the war was actually in the gates, meaning that the Canaanites had descended upon them. And then it says, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? So these people had come to the cities, but they didn't have any weapons, any way to defend themselves. So they were uh, virtually helpless before this enemy nation, this vastly superior war machine. 
And so she says, acknowledging how desperate they were, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. So she's saying, hey, all the odds were stacked against us, and yet these guys still willingly went to battle. She's praising them for their courage in that. And then in verse 10 and 11, it says, tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, break out in song, and arise, Barak, lead away your captives. This last little bit's kind of saying, hey, this is big news. Look what God's done. Tell everyone. Make sure that the song of praise is proclaimed so that everyone hears the great work that God's done. And then we get into verse 13, and this is where there's kind of a retelling of the battle. Verse 13, it says, Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty, which is, again, that, that recognition that they voluntarily went. And again, the nobles were right in the midst of it. They weren't sitting back at a safe distance. They were right in the middle of the battle. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. And from Achir, marched down the commanders. From Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came down with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley. They rushed at his heels. So what you're hearing here is a list of the different tribes of Israel that had willingly gone running into battle. Uh, for reference, Machir, um, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's all right. Um, that was half of one of the tribes. That particular tribe, half was on the east side of the Jordan. They uh, never had come across the Jordan when they came into the promised land. But these were the ones that were on the west side of the Jordan. So they had come into the promised land and they willingly went into battle. We also have a, a kind of a special mention when it talks about Issachar. It says, they came with Deborah uh, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley. They rushed at his heels. What they're saying is, hey, everyone came to battle, but these guys, like, they were right on the heels of Barak. As he led the charge, they were right at his heels. They were willingly, recklessly, with, with zeal, throwing themselves into the battle. I'm going to skip down, because in verse 18, there's two more special mentions. It says, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to death. Again, this idea of a reckless abandon, pouring themselves into the battle God had called them to. And Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field, uh, meaning they had chosen a difficult place. It was a risky place, but they put themselves there uh, as their contribution to the battle, trusting that God had called them to fight and that God would somehow deliver them. Now, in contrast to that, going back up to the second part of verse 15, it says, Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? They're mocking him, saying, where in the world were you guys? Were you just sitting around with your sheep, just listening to them make noise in the field? Like, God called you to battle. Where were you guys? Then it continues, uh, among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did they stay with the ships? Uh, interesting note, Dan, when they had come into the promised land, did not procure the place that was given to them. And they allowed the enemy tribes to continually push them further and further away until they ended up out at the sea. Um, and so they were out at the sea with their ships and seemed more concerned with their own affairs than being caught up in what God was doing. Similarly, Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by the landings. So apparently they were a port town and were more concerned with their affairs than coming and being a part of what God was doing. And so there's a contrast to these guys who did not respond to God's call and did not come to battle compared to those that did. And in church, we need to be thinking about ourselves. In our response to God's call in our life, are we willingly putting ourselves in with a risk-taking zeal, being a part of the work that God has put before us to do? 
or are we wrapped up in our own affairs and uninterested in what God's doing? In verse 19, it says, The kings came and they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver from the heavens. The stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping and galloping of his steeds. What we see here is, again, a reminder that God has delivered us. He sent storms in the off season. There should have been no storms, but yet God sent storms, and it flooded the river, and that river Kishon swept the enemy away. And and when when the waters rise, all that dry uh, dust and everything gets really muddy and mucky. And so when horses are walking along firm ground and then step into a soft ground, they freak out and they start jumping around. I imagine throwing off a lot of the riders. I know growing up, anytime uh, we would take people into the river on our horses and they'd start jumping around. If people weren't ready for it, we always would see people get bucked off. And so I imagine that was what's happening here. Um, but they're praising God. They're recognizing it was God's miraculous intervention. And the, the interesting thing about this, if you'll remember the God uh, Baal, he was their God of storms. And they worshiped him, trusting that he would bring storms in the right time of year to bring their crops and things. And God was purposely choosing that to show that he was more powerful. He was the true God over everything, the true powerful uh, God that they should be trusting. And so he used the very thing that they worshiped in the false God to show that he was the true God. And then in verse 23, there's this interesting interjection. It said, curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they didn't come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So what we know is this was a town, a small town, probably somewhere very close to the battle. We don't know exactly where, but somewhere close to the battle. And it was uh, Israeli people. And the Israelites didn't come to the battle. They purposely avoided being a part, uh, in, probably in their mind, to protect themselves. But here they're cursed, saying, man, God called you to battle, and you didn't come. Cursed be you. Uh, they say, um, you didn't come to the help of the Lord. That's not to mean, in the context of the whole verse, it's obviously not to mean that God needed their help. God was going to bring the victory. Really, it was, it was a shaming of them of, of not participating in the work God was going to do. It's like, hey, you didn't trust God was going to deliver us, so you were out protecting your own hide. You should have trusted the Lord like these other tribes, and you should have come to battle. And then we see in verse 24, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. So, for those of y'all that weren't here last week, the battle's raging. Sisera, the commander of the enemy army, ends up retreating and running, and he takes shelter in a tent. And Jael, the woman, was there, caring for the tent. That would be kind of her role at that time, the woman's role to care for the tents and uh, to stake it down and things of that nature. So he comes rushing in asking for help and she offers not just water, but offers him milk. And he's thinking she's going to help cover him up and protect him. And she's helping, you know, give him some, some milk for energy and to help him recover from the battle. But she was actually being very shrewd and she covered him up. And once he fell asleep, she drove the tent peg through his head, killing him and taking the victory. So then it says, between her feet, he sank, he fell. He lay still between her feet. He sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. And you can almost, even in the English translation, hear that kind of rhythmic, poetic um, telling of that. 
And then in the next section, there's kind of a, a mocking of the women who would have been back waiting for the Canaanites. It says, out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? She's saying, why haven't they come back yet? They should have already whooped the Israelites and been home. Her wisest princess answered, well, indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered, embroidered for the neck is spoil. What they're saying, uh, and if you'll note that phrase, a womb or two for every man, the Canaanites, it was um, their tradition in the, the war. They would have gone and rallied up the Israeli women and would have taken them as their own and raped them and pillaged. So you see uh, the women back home rejoicing. It Well, surely they're just taking their time and having fun. Like uh, you see just a vile, evil people and they're being mocked, almost a praise of God's justice over this evil people. And then in verse 31, it ends with praise. They say, so may all your enemies perish, Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And that phrase is both a recounting of God's justice. Lord, thank you. May all your enemies perish, be just, but then also a praise of his grace. And Lord, by your grace, uh, because they knew they had been unfaithful to the Lord. They had been worshiping enemy gods, and yet they're calling themselves friends. And so that's an acknowledgement. Lord, it is by your grace that you have made us your friends, and you have chosen to redeem and restore us. And then this idea of the son as he rises in his might, Israel knew that God had promised he would send a king that would uh, help draw them up as a nation and, and uh, that, that would be a king that would rule forever. And so that's a foreshadowing that God was going to send um, a rescuer which we know was Jesus, God's son. So the son has kind of a double meaning there. And Jesus would come and rise in his might and become the true king that would reign eternally. And so that final phrase is a praise, not only of God's victory in the moment, but a praise and a reminder that God had promised eternal victory for the Israelites. So having worked through that passage, uh, kind of verse by verse, and I want to go back, because uh, as a poem, it skips around a lot, and I want to highlight just a handful of points that we can draw from this. Number one, we're reminded that we should praise God for his loving discipline. Now, this one's not explicitly stated, but if you go back to verse uh, chapter four, Aaron preached last week, um, and we see that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. So because of their evil choice, to pursue other gods and to do what was evil in their own sight or, or what was right in their own sight and to do evil, uh, the, the lack of uh, respect for the Lord. And because they weren't worshiping the Lord, God in his love and discipline handed them over to the enemy so they would be reminded that they are dependent upon him. Life doesn't work when you're walking independent of the Lord. Uh, there's a quote by Dale Ralph Davis. It says, sometimes it's only when God's people see how hopeless they are that they can appreciate how mighty Yahweh is. Uh, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, and I'm just going to read the first bit, but I would encourage you to go back and look at the whole passage. It says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So when we're reading through Judges and we see again and again, people did what was evil and uh, did what was right in their own eyes and they did what was evil against the Lord and so the God handed them over to the enemies. That was God's loving discipline. They were 
walking into destruction by walking away from God and not abiding with the Lord and not being obedient to the Lord. So God in his love allowed discipline to overcome them so they would be reminded that they're not capable to operate on their own. They're not gonna enjoy life to the full that he's intended if they're walking separate from him. That discipline would draw them back in and it showed them that walking in obedience was where their safety and their greatest joy would be found. And that leads to the next point. Um, There is a praise to the Lord for his justice. Uh, As we've highlighted, the Sisera and the Canaanites were an evil people. We see that back again in chapter four where it talks about um, Sisera with his 900 chariots of iron had oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And then from the end of chapter five, that phrase, the, the, you know, surely they're just taking a womb or two for every man. This idea of just taking the women and doing their will with them, like clearly an evil people. And you may be thinking, yeah, like God took out the enemy. They deserved it, man. They were evil and they were terrible. But then some of y'all are going to say, well, that's fine that God was just against them, but I don't understand how a loving God could allow some innocent child or people that are in a country that have never heard of God's name. Like when we talk about the idea of justice, it sounds good when we know the person's evil, but what about these other people that don't seem so evil? My challenge to that would be that we probably... um, when we ask that question, we're having a poor view of both man and God. We're having too high of a view of the goodness of man and too low of a view of the holiness of God. Um, if you think about it, if we put uh, Sisera down here on one end of the scale or one end of the stage and, and God in his glory was over at the other end, you're probably thinking, okay, Sisera and those guys were clearly bad. I'm not on that end of the scale. Like, I know I'm not perfect, but, but I'm, I'm closer down here to where God would be. Like, I'm generally... I'm, love people. I try to do my best. I'm not perfect, but I do fairly well. And I think that's often where our mind goes, you know, the innocent people and wherever they are and haven't heard the name of Jesus. Like it's unjust for them to suffer because we tend to think of us as being closer to God. But, but the truth is, if the worst of the verse was down here and God's over there, like this would be us right next to them. Like at the best of our best days, we're virtually indistinguishable from the worst of the worst. In contrast to how different and unique God is in his perfection and his holiness. Are you tracking with me? God's greatness, his power, his perfection, his holiness is so completely separate and apart from us. And when you think about his holiness and his righteousness and how unrighteous we are and how prone we are to steal glory from him and to pursue it for ourselves, when you think of it from that perspective, the question that runs through my mind is, how could God in his justice allow any of us into heaven? That's a far bigger question to me than um, why he would allow some of us to suffer in hell. And and if that seems harsh or that seems hard to swallow, uh, think about the overarching storyline of all of history uh, that we see through scripture. At the very beginning, there was Adam and Eve. Uh, Then we see through Israel and we see it all the way up to you and I. And that's this. God called all of us to obey. You see in John uh, 14, 15, for example, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. God calls us to obey, and that's how we show that we're honoring him as Lord. We're going to do what he says, and we're going to follow and worship him. But all of us, again, from Adam and Eve, through the Israelites, throughout the the pages of Scripture, and to you and I, all of us disobey. And because we've been disobedient, our sin deserves the wrath of God. It deserves punishment. It deserves consequence. Sisera got the consequence very visually. And again, it's easy for us to rejoice. Oh, he's clearly evil. Yeah, they got him. The tent peg right through the head. He deserved to die. Can't believe what he did to the Israel people, uh, the people of Israel. 
Um, so we tend to celebrate that. But then the question is, what, what about our sin? Are, are we going to take that upon ourselves like Sisera did? Or are we going to rejoice in God's goodness? He's just. He poured out his wrath against our sin, but in his grace, he sent Jesus. Jesus as God's son, lived on the earth a perfect life in full obedience to God, not deserving death, not deserving consequence because there was no sin, and yet he willingly went to the cross and put himself on the cross, and he received spikes through his hands and feet, a sword in his side, and he died as he received the full wrath of God's judgment against sin upon himself. He died, rose again, conquering sin and death, and through that, God in his grace now provides for us the means that our sin can be forgiven. Instead of taking God's wrath upon ourselves, it's been put on Jesus. If we will just accept him as our Lord and Savior and accept his sacrifice in our place, the debt has been paid. So again, it's no surprise to me that God would allow us to be separated from him and to spend eternity in hell. What blows my mind is that he would have grace and that he would pour his wrath out instead of on us, on Jesus as a means to forgive us and to provide a way for our sin to be paid for so that we can be restored back into right relationship with him. That's a mind-blowing surprise. And when we understand that, we can not only praise God for his justice because he is faithful and just to extend justice against sin, but he is also gracious. And uh, point number three, we can praise God for his loving compassion and delivery. Guys, God is loving. It's not just sentiment. Uh, it's shown in action. He cares deeply for his people and for us. We see in this passage that uh, when God had compassion on them, he sent Deborah with a plan to redeem and rescue the people. And then he invited the people into the battle. He didn't need them. He could have done it on his own, but he invited them in so that when they walked in obedience with him and when they trusted him in the midst of the battle, they would get to see God show up and deliver them in miraculous ways. And so it was God's way of showing them his power and his might so they would experience him in deeper ways and come to a deeper understanding of just how powerful he was. So God in his grace has a plan to deliver them and then invites them in to experience that process. And God was praised for his work in delivering them. We see in Judges uh, 5, 3 through 5 and uh, 5, 20 and 22, where they talk about how God delivered them through the storms. And if you think about it, that was such an unexpected deal, right? Middle of summer, he didn't give them a forewarning. Hey, this is how it's going to unfold. He just said, go fight. And they trusted that somehow God would deliver them against the superior war machine. And, and I think the important thing for us to note in that is when God calls us to be a part of the work of the ministry and when he is maybe rescuing us from oppression or from difficulties that we're facing, often his methods are going to be surprising and unexpected, but generally what we'll find is his methods will expose our idols. Just as God confronted the, or used the storms because he was able to show he is the true God of power over all of creation, not this false God, Baal, that they were worshiping, he was the true God of power. Well, in the same way, he'll confront our idols. He'll show us the things that we're worshiping instead of him so that we would then get to walk in dependence upon him in place of those false idols that can't deliver us but actually enslave us. So we can praise God for his loving compassion and delivery. Even if his methods are unique, we can recognize he's gonna use those methods to help us grow and understand who he is and to expose our false idols. And then we should praise God for those that trust in him and we should be reminded that we're called to trust in him. Through the passage, we saw a bunch of different ways that trust was revealed. Um, 
in verses six through nine, there was trust in the face of suffering and oppression and overwhelming odds. We hear the people were hiding by, behind the roads and they didn't have spears or shields. I mean, they were vastly outnumbered, vastly out-equipped, and yet they had trust in the Lord despite all of the suffering and oppression and the overwhelming odds. And then that trust was shown by action. We see a number of references through Judges uh, chapter five where there's this praise that they took action and they went willingly into battle. Um, We see all the special mention of um, Issachar rushing at Barak's heels just with a, a, a reckless abandoned diving, being the first ones to get into the fight, trusting God was at work. Zebulun risking their lives at the point of death. Naphtali on the heights of the field. All of these special mentions showing these people were courageous and zealous, trusting that the Lord had a plan at work. We also see trust in the face of unexpected and scary circumstances. I mean, think about Jael, right? She's taking care of a tent, nothing to do with the battle. She knows what's going on, I'm sure. Uh, But she's taking care of the tent, and all of a sudden, the enemy commander comes busting in. He's got to be intense, breathing heavy, covered in his full army garb, probably bloody from the the fight that he had been in, Um, got his war, you know, his sword and all of that stuff. That's got to be a terrifying situation. And she's thinking, if I honor the Lord and I do something about this, uh, this much stronger, more powerful man who is equipped for battle could take me out. And yet, in trust, she courageously brought him in. She was crafty and shrewd, lured him in, gave him milk, put him to sleep, and then, in courage, took the stake, the tent mallet, and drove that stake through his head. And God, in his grace, delivered him into her hands for the Israelites to have victory Now, in contrast to all of these people that had trust, we see the lack of trust. Uh, Miraz and their their fear, being afraid to lose their lives, so they hide from the battle and they're cursed for that. We see some of the other people who didn't show up to battle because of distractions and being caught up with their own affairs. Um, Interestingly, there's a great quote um, that one of the commentators said. He said, of the four and a half tribes who didn't respond, none of them ever again made a significant contribution to the cause of God. Asher virtually vanished, except for a brief involvement with Gideon down the road. Dan nosedived into apostasy. And the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan were overrun repeatedly. Pay note to this next point. The chief victims of the reluctant spirit were the possessors of that spirit. They lived for themselves, refusing to risk what they had, and as a result, they lost what they had. And it was, it's always that way with the Christian life. If I don't have an eager, giving heart to God, my reluctant spirit will, will affect fellow believers, but above all, it will injure me as I shrivel up within my own shell. I imagine there's a word of conviction there for some of us that are here today. Church, we need to be challenged, and God is challenging us to live with trust When we live with trust and we pursue God's purposes and plans with a reckless abandon, church, that's where our greatest joy will be found. Think about it. The the Deborah and and Barak and the people of Israel that were a part of the battle, having just dove in with trust and put themselves on the line, are now rejoicing with great praise because of how they've experienced God's hand of delivery And that's true for us. When we put ourselves in God's hand and we follow with reckless abandon, that's where our greatest joy will be found, church. And because of that, that great joy that comes from walking in obedience and trusting in the Lord, we see that her story ends in praise, as does our story. Think about this. Verse 31, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises. As I said earlier, that's both a praise of God's justice, 
and also a praise of his great grace because we can recognize we don't deserve his grace. We deserve justice. We deserve his wrath. And yet, in his great mercy, he has rescued us and redeemed us and restored us. And so just as they experienced victory on that day and they were praising God for that victory, they were also recognizing that there's an even greater victory, an even greater promise that we're awaiting when God fulfills his covenant promise and restores us into his heavenly kingdom forever. In church, we have that same glory to await. And that should lead us to both praise in the immediate that he has redeemed and restored us and great praise knowing that something better is still to come. Revelation 7, 11, and 12, it says, all the angels were standing around the throne. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. This is set in, in a vision of the time to come when God restores his kingdom. And we see that the angels are rejoicing the Lord and praising the Lord saying, praise you forever. And that's what we have awaiting us, church. The story ends in praise and that should give us great hope. So what does this mean for us individually here within this church today? Well, first and foremost, I would say we're reminded we need to praise God for his loving discipline in our lives. Are you personally in a situation where you find, if you take honest reflection, that you're grumbling? Maybe grumbling about circumstances you're facing or grumbling about something in your life? I would question you, is it possible that the things you're grumbling about are actually God's discipline in your life? Perhaps you've drifted away from the Lord and perhaps you're not walking in obedience but are walking in disobedience in some aspect of your life? Uh, perhaps God's called you to something and you have, have not followed and not responded in, in that, you know, a sin of, of uh, omission, not doing what he's called you to. Maybe you're chasing after things other than God. Whatever the purpose may be, ask yourself, is God disciplining you? And if he is, I would challenge you to approach him in prayer. So often when there's difficult circumstances, we want to just come and say, Lord, please rescue me from this. But I would challenge you to pray, Lord, if this is your discipline, Help me to learn the lessons you want me to learn. Transform me so that I would honor you, that I would learn what it means to walk in obedience to you. Show me the idols that I'm chasing instead of you. Show me the things that I'm pursuing and wrapped up in instead of being wrapped up in you and your purposes and your plans. Lord, show me that. And and Lord, while I would ask that you rescue me from these hard circumstances, if you choose not to, help me to learn how to sit in this in a way that would honor you and bring glory to you. It's certainly not wrong to ask God to rescue from the circumstances, um, but as we see in the Israelites falling back into pattern after pattern of being overrun again and again and again, it's always because they get rescued and say, thank you, now I'm going to go back and do what I want to do and do what's right in my own side and what's evil in your side. We need to ask that God would reshape our thinking so that we would see things through his perspective and that we would live for his glory, not our own. So we should praise God for his loving discipline. We should praise God for his justice. Now, when I say that, some of you, that has a bit of a sting because it it stirs up anger because you've suffered horribly under the hands of somebody else who has sinned against you. And for those of you that have suffered under the sin of someone else and who have hurt and who are wondering, Lord, where's my justice? Why is this person allowed to do these things and to sin against you? And why are you allowing them to continue on with no justice? That might stir that question and there might be a lot of pain attached to that for you. If that's you, um, I wanna challenge you to, to consider that number one, 
God will either in his grace extend to them the same mercy and forgiveness that he's given you and he will in his love redeem and restore them and give them a new life by the blood of Jesus and we can rejoice in that. Or in his loving justice, he will allow them to face the consequences of their sin and it might not be in the here and now but they will spend eternity separate from God. But either way, justice and grace are both in God's hands and we can trust him with that. My encouragement to you would be to prayerfully surrender the bitterness. And one way to help with that, as hard as it can be to let go of the hurt and to trust God with that, one way to help is to focus on the fact that you have received God's grace and God's mercy. Let your gratitude spill over as you think about the fact that you actually deserve the same justice that that person that has sinned against you deserves. And it is only by God's grace that he has redeemed and restored you and given you a future hope and focus your sights on praising the Lord for that. As you do, I think he will help begin to resolve some of that bitterness you're holding to someone else who you think deserves justice more than you do. The next thing I would encourage you with is praise God for his loving compassion and deliverance. Church, as much as we think this world is broken, God sees it as so much more broken than we ever will because he knows what it was intended to be and he knows how much sin has ravaged this world. He cares and he cares so deeply he sent his son Jesus to die and to make a means so that we could be restored so that, that things could be brought back to the way they were intended. In church, we can praise him for that. We can praise him for those that have believed in Jesus. We can praise God for the compassion he's poured on us by restoring us back into his um, kingdom and restoring us back as his children. Ephesians 2, 4 and 7 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ And by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So church, for those that have accepted Jesus and who believe in him, there is a lot that we can have praise for. For those of y'all that are here today that are not yet Christians, my encouragement to you would be to make today the day where you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and you confess with your heart that you believe in him. Take the death that he died in your place. Accept that as your forgiveness. Accept him as your Lord and Savior and be made one of his children. He wants to restore you into his kingdom. Even though you're dead in your trespasses, he wants to make you alive together with Christ. So I invite you to make the day that Jesus becomes your Lord and Savior. I would also encourage all of us to really ask God, that he would help us trust in him and and praise God for those around you who live a life of trust in him and model that for us. Church, the more God possesses your heart, the more you will trust in him. And, And that will be evident by the way you live your life because the more you trust in him, the more you will respond with enthusiasm to be part of the things that God is calling you to, to be involved in the work of the ministry that you see God doing around you. The more courageous and bold you will live for his glory. And as you do, as you live more courageously, as you walk with him and you live in obedience, the more you will experience the joy of seeing God at work in your life and through your life as he pours out his power, redeeming and restoring and growing others. Gary Enrig in another quote says, the delightful thing is that a giving volunteer spirit produces a joyful heart, 
Jebra and these volunteers were singing because they knew the joy of giving to the Lord. They had paid a tremendous sacrifice, and in the midst of that, they saw God show up in such a powerful way, and because of their, their witnessing of God's incredible power and might and his restoration, they had so much to praise him for. It reminds me, actually, of the people that just came back from the mission trip. A couple of weeks ago, a number of people from the church went down to Mexico and served in a mission trip, and here they've spent their money their time to go down and to serve others. As Gibson uh, Patrick, uh, one of our youth that went on the trip said, said, I had to keep remembering, I'm not here for vacation, I'm here to serve them. And that's such a mature perspective. This wasn't for his glory, it was for theirs. He was there to serve them and to bring glory to God by serving others. And you would think you've given your time, your money, your resources. If anybody has a right to come back and complain, they just paid to go to work for a week. Most people are looking to get paid to do work for a week. They paid to go do work for a week and they came back overwhelmed with joy. That's the evidence of a people that trust and are following God. Their lives are marked by joy and praise because they get to see God at work. And church, that reminds us that the story ends with praise and so we should rejoice. Um, I wanna challenge all of us, all of you, myself as well, to do a fruit check Really ask yourself, is your life marked by grumbling or is your life marked by praise? And candidly, this is a fruit check we need to do over and over because at times we might praise, but it's so easy to fall back into grumbling. So anytime you see that grumbling, ask yourself, what am I so focused on that I'm grumbling about? And I'll bet you will always find you're too focused on yourself, the challenges in your life or various other things, and you're not focused on the Lord And if you find yourself in that place, my encouragement would be raise your sights. Ask the Lord to reshape your perspective, to see life through his perspective and remind you that that he has an overarching plan and ask him to show you that overarching plan and your place in that because all of our challenges and things all fall under his control and all fall well within his sovereign plan that he has put in place to interact uh, or to, 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 to carry out his grace and his glory for the world to see what a glorious God he is. So as you raise your sights and you focus on the Lord, I guarantee you'll see an increased measure of praise to God for his sovereign reign and the incredible work that he's doing as we all await for him to do the final restoration of redeeming and restoring us as his people in an eternity in heaven with him. So church, when we think about all that God has done, we have a lot to praise him for. And with that, we are actually going to transition into our time of response and praise. We're gonna start with a time of giving So if our financial stewards would be gracious and come forward, um, they will begin to take the offering. If you're visiting with us, please know there is no obligation. This is something that we as a church do as a genuine act of response, of praise to God, recognizing that in his grace, he has entrusted us with financial resources, some great, some small, but all of it is a blessing from the Lord. And this is a way for us to, to give honor to God, saying thank you for what you've entrusted to me and to give back to him to further the work of his ministry and the proclamation of his name. So if you're a guest, you're welcome to give, but please feel no obligation. While they're passing the buckets, I want to give you a few questions and prayer points for you to wrestle with, and especially for those of you that are in community groups or uh, that are connecting with friends after the sermon at some point, wrestle through these questions together. Question number one, where in your life do you grumble and where do you give God praise? Number two, consider the tribes that did and did not respond to the call to battle and ask yourself the following questions. What are you focused on if you're not focused on God? Think about 
For example, Reuben and Gilead and Dan and Asher, those tribes were focused on their own affairs and they were uninterested and unwilling to get involved in what God was doing, so they missed out. What are you trusting in if not God? What are you afraid of if not God? Think about, in that last one, Miraz, who was right there at the battlefront and yet avoided it. They were afraid of something. What are you afraid of if you're not trusting God? Are you experiencing God's discipline in your life? And what do you think he is trying to teach you if you are? Where and how is God calling you to trust him? And what has God done in your life that you should be praising him for? A couple of prayer points. Pray that God would expose the things that we trust in over him and that we would help all of us to trust him more. And pray that God would help us to see and appreciate all the evidence of his grace at work in our lives and that we would respond by praising God. Uh, The financial stewards are now passing out the communion and uh, communion is for any of you who proclaim faith in the Lord. Um, Even if you're just visiting with us today, we welcome for you to partake. Uh, If you're not a Christian, we would ask you to just let the bucket pass by. This is something that we do as a reflection and a reminder for the sacrifice Jesus made when he went to the cross on our behalf to receive God's wrath upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. I'll read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This is the cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you receive those, I encourage you just to hold on to it for a minute. Once they're done here in a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, I would encourage you just take a moment. Uh, The band will be coming up and leading us in song and worship, and y'all can go ahead and come forward and get ready. Um, And so as I pray, they're going to start us in song and worship. I encourage you just take a moment of reflection. Think about where maybe you've been grumbling. Think about where God is showing you opportunities to praise. Think about God's great grace in your life. Take that moment of reflection and then you'll be able to take communion as you're ready. And afterwards, after you've taken communion, we invite you to just stand and to enjoy singing as another means of response and worship and praise to God for his great grace. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your outpouring of grace upon us. We thank you that you would send Jesus to die on our behalf, to take your full wrath against himself so that we would not have to receive that same wrath and justice that we deserve. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that and that we would continually see the different ways that your grace is at work in our lives. And as we see those evidences of your grace, I pray that we would respond in praise to you and that we would be a people marked by rejoicing in praise because we worship you, an almighty God. In your name we pray, amen.